Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and today I'm joined as ever by my co-host Astrid Edwards. And this week we have been talking about the environment. Our guest today is Aja Barber, who you probably know from Instagram. She is an extraordinary advocate and voice for change in the space of fashion. Her book is Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change and Consumerism. In this book, Aja Baba takes us on a journey through the endemic injustices in our consumer industries. She tells us the deeply uncomfortable history of the textile industry, one which brokered slavery, racism and today's wealth inequality. She looks at these oppressive systems and she looks at how they have bled into the fashion industry and why that means a lack of diversity and equality. And then she talks about the planet. She talks about how we try and fill our emotional voids with consumption rather than compassion. She talks about how we can be a better citizen rather than a consumer and preserve this beautiful planet of ours for the next generation. It is my delight to welcome Asha Baba. Aja Baba, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. We are so thrilled to have you very early in the morning where you are, just before dinner time here. And that feels like as good a time as any to ask you about where your personal sustainability awareness began and where it came from. So I would say, I think my mother got me this book when I was like 10 years old from like the Scholastic Book Fair. And it was... 50 things kids can do to save the planet. And up until I had that book, I didn't realize that the planet was in peril. And then after that, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I learned so much from that book. And this is the power of giving something to children. Basically, I learned so much in that book and throughout my life, I've always sort of thought about these things. I mean, I remember there being a general awareness moment in the 90s where people started to talk about it. And then it sort of just tapered off. And now we're sort of back to that place. Well, no, we're at a new place where it's unavoidable. But I grew up in a pretty like earth crunchy granola area. And so I think it was always sort of a part of me, but also my parents are definitely like my sister calls them stinky vitamin hippies because they are very, very health conscious and, you know, somewhat earth conscious as well. So, so yeah, I think it's always sort of been in me even as a kid. And my dad was also very, very active in the community. Like he was a union president for many years. So activism is also something that's a part of us. His dad organized uh, civil rights from York, Pennsylvania. And so it's been a medley of my life story. But yeah, it started pretty early. Yeah, it sounds like making change was in your blood. I think anybody can really honestly do it. I don't think it has to be there, but I think the foundation for questioning the world that we live in is really good if it starts when it's young. 
you know, I like I feel very fortunate to have been given those tools to be like, that's not OK. That's not OK. And I don't think everybody gets that. But I think honestly, anyone can do what I'm doing. I think that after anyone reads Consumed, they will have a very long to-do list of the things they can consider in their own life and how they can change. You are an American living in London. And one thing that struck me all the way through Consumed is the global perspective you offer, but at the individual level. You are talking to people all around the world and putting sustainability, particularly in the fashion world, in context that I suspect most people haven't thought about in depth before. Can you introduce us to Consumed and what your goal for this book was? So my goal is just to get people thinking a little bit deeper about the frivolous purchases that we make and the things that we do to sort of play our part in society that might actually be having a negative impact on someone in another part of the world. I think most people do not actually really understand much about the garment and fashion industry. And that's for various reasons. There's obviously a shroud of mystery around fashion. There's definitely an exclusivity point that people feel like they can't really access, especially with high fashion. And then there's this thing where we also completely negate fashion, just like we do with the arts in general, where it gets chalked up as frivolous, silly women stuff for people that aren't non-men, basically. And so it gets chalked up as frivolous as silly. And that 10-pound dress that you buy, that's just a frivolous, silly purchase. But in actuality, the fashion industry accounts for a large percentage of the jobs on our planet. The fashion industry is largely an intersectional issue because the majority of garment makers are overwhelmingly women. The fashion industry can raise or lower the GDP of a country. There are fashion corporations that are bigger than governments of the countries that they manufacture in, hence they can strong arm what it is that they would like to do and how they would like to treat the workers. The fashion industry accounts for how so many of us view and perceive ourselves in this notion of what is a woman, you know? And so because our society does this thing where we devalue the fashion industry, people do not understand what's at stake behind the purchase that you make that you didn't have to make. And I really want to break that down for people. Aja, do you have a definition of sustainable fashion? And I wouldn't normally ask someone to be a dictionary for us, but I ask because I feel like there is so much misunderstanding in this space and increasingly brands want to market themselves as environmentally aware, as sustainable, and yet it's not always true. So what's your definition of fashion that's sustainable? Well, the first thing I want to say is the most sustainable garment you own is the one that's already in your closet, regardless of where it came from. Wearing and giving your clothing a good life is the most sustainable thing you can do. And I think people get it twisted because the whole conversation around sustainability is currently being co-opted by big polluters and massive corporations. And so I understand the confusion. People feel like sustainability is something that you have to buy into. That is not true. Consumerism has basically gotten inside all of our heads and just skirt around in there. To me, I tell people, if you want to participate in sustainability, limit the amount of clothing you buy every year. 
it's not even about having the bamboo storage containers and the sustainable life as we see on Instagram. Okay. Instagram is one of those things where it sells you a lifestyle. And because sustainability has become something that's big on there, I think people sometimes get a little bit like, oh, I can't afford to like go out and replace my entire wardrobe with sustainable designers. Now, obviously there are some designers that I think we're doing amazing stuff, but the notion of going out and replacing the good wardrobe that you already have with new clothing from sustainable brands isn't actually a sustainable move, you know? So I tell people, if you want to really participate in sustainability, wear the clothing you have, give it a good life. And then when you need something, because that's the thing, this cycle in which we've been buying has no separation between need and want. We've been told that you need new clothing every couple of months, that you need a new swimsuit, even though you have five from last summer that are great. You need a new dress for that wedding. Even though you've got 20 wedding dresses, you know, 20 dresses, four weddings. And so I always tell people the first thing to do if you really want to participate in sustainability is slow down. But as far as sustainable fashion goes, I think of the slow factories definition, good for the people, good for the planet. So a brand that is keeping the planet in mind while also treating every person who touches that product like a human who is deserving of fair wages and fair pay. That's the definition that I can come up with. If a brand is only focusing on the environment and their materials and that sort of stuff, but can't promise a living wage, that's not a sustainable brand. What are you trying to sustain your bottom line? I think there's a lot of that in the fashion world. Now, Consumed mm-hmm. is not just a book about consumption and consumerism and, and how both relate to the environment. As you just mentioned, it's about fair pay for work. And throughout the book, you draw the explicit link that exists between the fashion industry and what we think of as fashion to colonialism and also to racism and slavery. Yeah. I suspect a lot of people who are listening to this podcast wouldn't have made the link between fast fashion and slavery. Can you talk mm-hmm. the listener through that? Because as you just said, it can't be a sustainable brand if the brand is just pretending to, or just focusing on the environment. So I think one thing that people don't think about a lot is that chattel slavery to which I am the descendant of was driven by materials, particularly cotton. So cotton is the fabric of our life. You know, you've got it in your wardrobe. I have it in my wardrobe. It's completely durable, though it does drink up a lot of water. But that was behind a lot of the oppression that my people faced. And so people just really don't understand enough about what we're wearing and what we're buying to really sort of think deeply about it. And consumerism really pushes us to consume in such a fast way that you don't have time to think about it. But if I were to put it in the most simplest terms today, what I would say is from start to finish, marginalized non-white people get crapped on in this system. It is most likely a marginalized non-white woman who is making the garment. And then at the end of its life cycle, it either ends up in a dump, which is often in a marginalized non-white person's neighborhood, or it might get shipped out as a donation to a country in the global South where black people or brown people are also tasked with dealing with the end of the life cycle of that garment. One of the things that we 
talk about a lot in the book is Cantamonto Market in Akargana. And that is the world's probably largest secondhand retail market on the planet. They receive 15 million items every week. And they're only able to sell a percentage of what arrives, which means the rest becomes trash for the government to deal with. And it ends up in neighborhoods and it ends up in their ocean on their beaches and it becomes an ecological crisis. And so from start to finish, basically non-white people get the short end of the stick with this deal. But that has always sort of been the energy that it's run on. There's always been someone who is really, really bearing the brunt of it. And it is usually not the affluent, privileged white person. The chapters where you explain what happens in Akragana in the market are going to stay with me for quite a while. Intellectually, I knew of the problem and I have seen pictures, but your words brought home what fast fashion means on such an intimate level, if that makes sense. Extremely well written and chapters that I think will stay with all readers for a long time. Thank you for that. The thing with consumerism is that we're, we're told to just do it without questioning, without thinking about how these cycles impact other people. And if I can help to illuminate the bigger picture and what's really happening behind the scenes, I'm hoping that a few people will stop and think, okay, do I want to participate in fashion in this way? Or is there another way for me to participate and feel really good about myself and feel okay about what I'm doing? You know, obviously there are always going to be people that are going to go, there's no ethical consumerism under capitalism, but you know what? What, are we going to throw our hands up in the air and be like, yeah, you're right. Let's just support child slavery. No, we're not. Let's do something better. What is the impact of the pandemic and the lockdowns and the stay-at-home orders in some countries being on fashion? Has it been a bit of a wake-up call for some people, I suppose, because I, I feel like I've realised just how much I dress for other people rather than for myself? And the importance of comfort over newness has taken over. Have we seen any kind of shift over the last 18 months in consumerism? So that question has multiple moving parts. I'm going to start with the bad news first. The first thing I would say is for the major polluters within the fashion industry, they've completely shit the bed on this. They had an opportunity to really clean up their act and they have not done that. Additionally, big brands decided that this would be a great opportunity to continue to take advantage of garment workers. And so there was a campaign that was launched called the hashtag pay up campaign. And basically what the pay up campaign was about was when we went into lockdown when much of the world did. A lot of big brands said, ah, you know what? My store's not open, so I'm not going to pay for the clothing that I ordered from the factory. A lot of brands did it. There's a pretty active list that shows who's done it and who attempted to do it because a lot of brands did sort of go, oh, we're not going to do it, but we'll just stay quiet about it. And then after pressure was put on, they decided maybe we should pay for the clothing that we should rightfully pay for instead of taking advantage of people. So first you have that. Then you have everybody sort of pledging and saying, oh, we're going to slow down. We're going to do things differently. And I don't really see that happening. I felt like there was a lot of lip service where the fashion industry was handed an opportunity to say, 
let's go back to the drawing board and really get things right when we come out of here. And I just feel like that did not happen. As far as citizens go, I tried not to use the word consumer because I think that's definitely a part of this problem. I think citizens are of two sides, basically. I think you have people that were already sort of like one foot out the door on participating in fast fashion. I think that there were people that it's kind of hard to miss that climate emergency is happening all around us. And there were people that were starting to make those links and people that were starting to go, you know what? I don't think I want to do this anymore. And those people were like, ah, this is a really great opportunity for me to test out that I was already feeling uncomfortable with this system. And I feel like the people that made that choice during the pandemic, they ain't never going back. But then I feel like there are people that are just like, la, 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 I want to buy things. They make me feel better. And those people, I think, have dove even deeper into consumerism. And additionally, as we know, with the rise and success of the brand Shein, people have gone even cheaper because Shein undercuts everyone in the market as far as price point goes, which, by the way, that most likely means that there's somebody who is not getting paid fairly within that supply chain. You just can't really sell five pounds, 10 pound dresses and say that everyone's getting paid fairly when you're a billion dollar company because that money's not being evenly distributed throughout the supply chain. So we see a company where I think there's a lot of room for exploitation and uh, they've gotten extremely popular because people have been I'm bored. You know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with everything. I'm unhappy with everything. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Might as well just buy all the things. But then you also have people who have definitely taken this time to slow down and be more thoughtful and really think about the impact of what they're doing. So we're at a real crossroads, but I think what we need to do is really just really broaden these conversations. So it includes some of the people that were not really thinking about these issues before we went into lockdown. And that's what I'm hoping this book can do. I'm hoping that people can, instead of having a friendship that breaks down because your friend really likes going to the mall, maybe you can just give them my book for Christmas and then they'll be like, oh, wow. That is a fantastic idea. Everybody buy Consumed, even the e-copy. You know, if you buy it for yourself, pass it on to a friend for Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever. There's nothing wrong with a used present. Whatever your holiday is, or just pass it on to a friend either way. You know, if you really like it and you want to keep it, that's totally fine. But I have no problem with you passing on my book to a friend. In Consumed, you make the explicit point that the climate crisis is an intersectional feminist issue. At least in Australia, that point is not necessarily coming through the narrative. Now, that is because the climate crisis narrative in Australia has been taken over by politics and it's a bit weird. But climate change is a feminist issue. Women will suffer first on all different levels. Can you talk us through why the climate crisis is a feminist issue and how that specifically relates to the listeners who might be very well buying the Christmas presents, buying the clothes for the family? So Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson calls it a threat multiplier. And I think that's the best way to look at it. Under climate crisis, people that are already marginalized will become further marginalized. 
there's been a lot of proof that after natural disasters sort of occur in places, a lot of forced sex work happens. Now I'm a big supporter of sex workers, but we want people to be able to make choices for themselves instead of feeling like they're forced to do something. I, and so if women are already marginalized in certain countries, all of the disasters that are coming will force more marginalized, more suffering upon people, basically. But it's going to exasperate the inequalities in our society that we already see. It's going to dial it right up to an 11, basically. And so people need to understand these oppressions that we already talk about in our society will just be magnified under climate emergency because people that don't have the tools that they need to have a really nice and fair life they're not going to get those tools magically under climate emergency. Basically, I just feel like if we already have people within our society that don't have the tools that they need in order to have a fair and equitable life, that's going to be magnified under climate emergency. And I think it's also important to note that just to give people numbers to play with, okay, we know that we're facing water insecurity. We're, we're facing that currently on the planet. Water should be a human, right? It's, it's not, and it should be. One t-shirt and a pair of jeans uses 5,000 gallons of water to produce from start to finish. So if we know that we are looking at a future where people are talking about water wars, Let's think about the jeans that somebody bought that maybe they don't really need and they're not going to like, and then they're going to put it in a charity bag and then it probably won't get resold and it'll get dumped in the global South. That represents water that somebody could be drinking and materials that didn't need to be made, materials that didn't need to be harvested. I think when people really understand the numbers of what's going on behind this system, I think they can draw their own dots. And so just for reference, 100 billion garments are produced every year. You know, the average human, I think, can't really break down what a billion looks like because it's it's hard for our brains. But that is a lot of clothing. It's one of those things where if we start to break down what a million, what a billion looks like, I think we start to really grasp the scale of the problem. 20% of all items go unsold. So that's 20 billion items not being sold every year that's being produced because brands would rather hope that we'll all buy all of that stuff rather than let it go to waste. And if we know that 20 billion items are being unsold, it takes 5,000 gallons of water to produce a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. How much water is that? Azure, I want to ask about the fashion industry and inclusivity, because while I do not want it for a minute to play down the discussion we've had around sustainability, a lot of fat women make the point that the fashion industry is built for slimmer women and that to be sustainable as a fat woman is a whole lot harder because the variety of brands unavailable, op shopping is not as inclusive a lot of the brands that do cater to larger women are those fast fashion, cheap $10, $20 pair of jeans brands. So how do we move the fashion industry forward when it comes to sustainability and inclusivity at the same time? 
I'm glad you asked that because I think if we're changing everything, let's get that in there. It's always been a part of my platform uh, talking about inclusion and fat phobia. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a fat body person. I'm a small fat, but I'm definitely, you know, there are certain stores on the high street where I can't walk in and I'll never find a pair of trousers that will go over my hips. That's just how it goes. And I never used to question these things when I was participating in the fast fashion model. I just sort of chalked it up as, well, you know, you're just shit out of luck there, Aja. But in actuality, it's wrong. It's wrong. And I have to say, I don't really include plus size consumers in the fast fashion issue. Because as we see when we go into charity shops, there's a rack of dresses. And then at the very end, there's like two or three dresses that are like bigger than a size 18. And so if you just look at what's in charity shops, that alone tells you that plus size people and the clothing waste generated by plus size bodies isn't actually the problem because that stuff isn't even ending up in charities. The friends that I know and myself, we tend to sort of be like, right, I've got two pairs of jeans. I got to make these last until they fall apart because I don't want to have to deal with finding a sustainable maker of a jean that's going to fit my body, which is really sad. So for me, a big part of my platform is pushing brands to be inclusive in size because I'm just going to be honest. It's their fat phobia. Yes. For small brands, you know, a small brand starting out only can make a limited amount of products. I get that. But once you start becoming a mid-sized brand, like just say you don't like fat people and go, but stop making it seem like it's rocket science to be inclusive in your sizing because I call horseshit on that. Like, honestly, I set out to do like a collab with my friend Laura of the brand Laura Jean because I got so tired of sustainable and ethical brands pretending like it was sacred geometry to scale a pattern up. Like, seriously, let's just call it what it is. Just say that you're fat phobic and then learn about fat phobia and get over it. But stop acting like it's something that's impossible to do. And I see it a lot in ethical and sustainable fashion. And I am just going to continue to call it out because it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable not to dress people. It's unacceptable to have a movement in which you go, oh, everybody has to join our movement, but not you over there. No, not you. Mm -mm." Like we can't pretend like this is a new movement by carrying the same toxic tropes that the fashion industry has brought along the whole time. Let's cut that out and let's actually build an inclusive movement that everyone can be a part of. So, you know, I tell people how I run my platform. One of the things I do, any brand that approaches me about gifted stuff, I check their size range. First question I ask, so do you plan on extending your sizes past this point? If the answer is no, it's an immediate no. I don't care if you make my size. If you're not willing to include more people and you have the power to do it, because let's be honest, when it comes to brands of a certain size, they have the power. Like they just are not being imaginative in their thinking. So I turned down a lot of stuff, but then I also get brands that will offer me stuff. (laughs) They don't even make my size, which is so embarrassing for them. Like, that's so silly. Like, are you kidding me with this bullshit? So I think that if more people with platforms 
instead of saying that they were into body positivity, actually just put their money where their mouth is and started asking every brand that they work with to be inclusive when it comes to sizing and started really focusing on this. We could change that overnight. We could change the system. And I'm hoping that hopefully when people read the book, they'll start to be like, Ooh, I have a platform. I could do this. I could actually just ask brands to be better because honestly, this isn't something that should be left up to just plus size people. If everybody's into body positivity now, and apparently that's the word on the street, then let's all like actually put our money where our mouth is. Aja, thank you so much for spending your evening, our morning, oh, other way around, our evening, your morning with us. We've so enjoyed your company. We absolutely loved the book. We loved Consumed. And you have definitely given me a lot to think about with this conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we've got time for with the phenomenal Aja Barber. Her book is, of course, Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change and Consumerism. It is out now at all good bookstores or you can buy it online at Booktopia. That's all we've got time for today on Anonymous Was a Woman. We have loved having your company. Please make sure you join us again. The best way to do that is to subscribe or to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a lovely rating or a review? And we really look forward to hearing from you in the future. An enormous thanks to Hachette and also to Bad Producer Productions and Future Women for making this episode possible.